This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I thought we'd start, um, by the way, do we need the disclosure about our do. relationship? We're married. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> at least at the start of this talk. Let's yeah, we'll see how things go by the end. She's so, a very tough interviewer. So I've, I actually lived through the book, which was interesting uh, to watch it evolve. And uh, so what I thought we'd do is start, I thought I'd start by asking you about the genesis, okay. which I know the answer to. And... Uh, and then I'd like to divide this into three sections, um, a hope section, a hype section, and a harm section, because the title of the book is The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. So um, I think that's a nice way to divide it up. But first, tell us how it all got started. Sure. I guess I'd start with my own interest, my own interest uh, are in the way the healthcare system is organized, and uh, I've always had this abiding interest in how do we figure out ways of delivering care that's better and safer and more accessible and more satisfying to patients and cheaper. This all seemed like a reasonable goal for the healthcare system. And over the last 15 years or so, I've been very interested in patient safety and how why do we harm people and how do we make care safer. And for those of us who've been interested in patient safety, we've been waiting for computers to enter the world of healthcare. It was logical that if you've seen errors that were caused by doctors' handwriting that people couldn't, couldn't read or information that couldn't move from place A to place B, it was logical that computers would fix things. And so finally, over the last five, seven, eight years, we went from a paper industry to a digital industry, and I assumed that that would just make things better. It seemed logical that it would make things better and would be pretty easy and straightforward. And I just kept seeing things that were surprising uh, and in some ways made certain things better but made certain things worse in ways that completely surprised me. And uh, what happened first, I think, was I started pitching you stories. So um, I, write, I, would, I write a lot about healthcare for the Times. So, so, so Katie was uh, uh, wrote for ten years, wrote about technology for the Times. Twenty years. Uh, Twenty, excuse me. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, and then began getting more and more interested in healthcare. And I would come home and say, uh, you know, after we watched IBM Watson uh, computer beat the Jeopardy champions, I said, it'd be an interesting question. Are we going to need doctors when you have computers like that? So she wrote a story about that, and she wrote a story about, uh, about scribes, so this idea of, you know, that doctors aren't looking patients in the eye anymore, and we're bringing new people into the office to feed the computer so that the doctor could re-engage with the patients. So I think that was my symptom of this is, I found it interesting, but I had no idea that I'd want to write a book about it. And then one day, for those of you who read the book know this, at this hospital, which is a spectacular hospital with great people, we gave a kid a 39-fold overdose of a common antibiotic. Correct dose was one pill. We gave this kid 39 pills in a completely digital, wired environment. And as I sat and listened to the case being described in our uh, patient safety committee, uh, it was remarkable to me. My jaw just dropped and dropped and dropped because it really wasn't fully the computer's fault. It was the way the people in the computer were interacting with each other. And I, uh, the more I listened to it, the more I recognized that this was this amazing moment in healthcare. We finally had gone digital, and yet it wasn't achieving the results that we hoped, and in fact was creating some new harms that I didn't expect. 
So I came home at the end of a long day, and I said, honey, I think I need to write a book about this. And um, she said, Katie said, that's a, just a great idea. It's an interesting topic. It's this amazing moment in healthcare where you've gone from paper to digital. She said, but the only way you are going to do this and get it right is if you do this journalistically. And I said, what the hell does that mean? And she said, you're going to have to go out and talk to people. And I said, I hate people. And she said, I know that, but it's the only way you're going to get it right. And, it's like uh, that Tom Lehrer line, there are some people who don't like other people, and I can't stand people like that. <laughs> exactly. And what Katie meant, of course, was, uh, which I didn't fully understand at the time, is that you know a lot about this, but you don't know enough to write a, a really good book. And to do that, you're going to have to go out there and into the field and talk to the leaders of health IT companies and doctors and nurses and patients and, uh, and you know, everybody you can think of who will help educate you about the scope of this story because the story is not narrowly a story about technology at all. It's actually a story about medicine and policy and politics and money and ethics and transformation and everything. And, and patience. And patience, yes, exactly. So and, that's what I did. So I spent about a year doing that, so and that's how the book happened. You were resistant at first. Oh confirm that. Uh, <laughs> but what's amazing is that he was off and running. I mean, he just immediately figured out who to talk to, uh, and then he went off. We took a cross-country, we were on our way to Boston for a sabbatical, and we stopped in all these different places, and Bob interviewed people, and pretty soon he had binders full of... Binders full of, not women, binders full of... <laughs> Some notes. women. Yeah, I, so I had, by the time I was done, I had about four or 5,000 pages of transcribed notes. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and I've never written a book like that. So the act of writing a book when you've done that much research is this incredibly interesting and actually quite fun act of sculpting, really, of trying to figure out what's the arc, what are the stories that bring to life the issues. And you know, I'm not, I'm not a journalist by training, but I could see why it's immensely satisfying when you sort of figure out. It's, it's actually a little bit like medicine in a way, because in some ways you're trying to make a diagnosis and you get certain clues from something you know or from talking to someone, and then you're trying to figure out, is that right? And you talk to another person, you do some background research, and, and then you're looking for, in medicine sometimes, you look for something the patient says to you that's like this aha moment where, oh, now I get it. And actually the same thing is true here. You look for kind of this, somebody tells you something, you say, bingo, I either understand it or bingo, that's the money quote that really is going to sort of enliven the story. Mm -hmm. So it was really, uh, really quite gratifying. So why don't you read us a little bit from the introduction, I think, and then we can, I want to come back to uh, the 39-fold um, overdose story because it's kind of the anchoring story for the book and, uh, and it's just, it's, it's an amazing story. So. Right. So I'll read a couple paragraphs from the very beginning and then a paragraph in the middle of the beginning, uh, which and I'll tell you why. So, like many of my colleagues in medicine, I had long anticipated the digitization of healthcare with unbridled optimism. After all, our daily experience the rest of our lives has taught us that all we needed to do was turn on our iPhone, download an app, and off we'd go, whether we were buying a book, making a restaurant reservation, finding a favorite song, or getting directions to the nearest Starbucks. It was only natural for us to believe that wiring the healthcare system would be similarly straightforward. But healthcare's path to computerization has been strewn with landmines, large and small. 
medicine, our most intimately human profession, was being dehumanized by the entry of the computer into the exam room. While computers were preventing many medical errors, they were also causing new kinds of mistakes, some of them whoppers. Sensors and monitors began throwing off mountains of data, often leading to more confusion than clarity. Patients entered the loop. Many could now see their laboratory and pathology results before their physician did. Some could even read their doctor's notes, yet they remained woefully unprepared to handle their, long form, uh, their, their hard-fought empowerment. For years, we'd been promised that the computerization of medicine would be that long-awaited disruptive innovation. But it seemed to me that it was often just plain disruptive of the doctor-patient relationship, of clinicians' professional interactions and workflow, and of the way we measured and tried to improve things. I'd never heard the term unanticipated consequences in my professional world until a few years ago. And suddenly, we found ourselves using it all the time, constantly astounded by the speed with which things were changing and the unpredictability of the results. Now, let me read you one more paragraph. And uh, I call this the Zoe paragraph. Zoe's our daughter, and Zoe's applying to med school now, and Zoe's very smart and has no problem telling me when I'm screwing up. And, uh, and she read a draft of the book, and she said, this is pretty terrific, but I don't get why this matters. And I said, no, no, this all, it's, you know, it's marbled through the book about why this is important to patients and doc." And she said, you never quite say that. And uh, then Katie one day uh, cornered me in the shower. And, <laughs> well, well, hold on. <laughs> and, 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 and forced me to, this into context. to read a, uh, a David Foster Wallace article. Actually, I, I read it aloud to you. You read it aloud to me, yeah. I didn't hear much of it because the shower was on. <laughs> and um, in part trying to sort of up my game, and it was the combination of Zoe pushing me to, uh, to, try, to talk about why this matters, and then listening to this David Foster Wallace piece, which was it was on the, the John McCain yeah, piece. Yeah, it was then, about John McCain. It's from um, as, Consider uh, the Lobster, the collection of essays, and it's about him getting um, uh, shot down in Vietnam. It's an amazing, amazing essay. I mean, something I've learned from Katie that she does because it's what she does for a living, and I don't, uh, in part because I don't, but this ability to read great writing and say... Oh, I don't. That's not what I'm writing about. But the rhythm and the you know the cadence and the way he or she framed that, I'm going to use that. And Katie spent a lot of her life reading and keeping notes like that. And because I don't do this for a living, I didn't do much of this. But I think this was an example where even just hearing the cadence helped me figure out how to answer Zoe's question. So this is what I call the Zoe paragraph. Making this work matters. Talk of interoperability, federal incentives, barcoding, and deep learning can make it seem as if healthcare information technology is about, well, the technology. Of course it is. But from here on out, it is also about the way your baby is delivered, the way your cancer is treated, the way you are diagnosed with lupus or reassured that you aren't having a heart attack, the way when it comes down to whether you will live or die, you decide and tell the medical system that you do or you don't want to be resuscitated. It is also about the way your insurance rates are calculated and the way you figure out whether your doctor is any good and whether you need to see a doctor at all. Starting now and lasting until forever, your health and health care will be determined to a remarkable and somewhat disquieting degree 
by how well the technology works. So that was my effort to say why this all matters and this sort of run-on sentence, I think uh, David Foster Wallace has like a page of one sentence. And mm-hmm. this, that style, I thought, was uh, what I tried to, uh, to mimic here. So thanks for that. Uh, it's nice. He's, by the way, he's one of these irritatingly really fluid writers. You know, I'm like the world's slowest, most laborious writer. And Bob really, I mean, he's just very, you know, he's, his, his drafts are always clean. Uh, he, the words just sort of march one after another. Uh, so it was, a very, it was a very nice book. I got to, uh, I got to edit the, an early draft, and it was just super easy because he's such a good writer. So um, let's, divide, let's divide this into the three sections. Let's talk first about the hope of computers in medicine. Uh, and I have to say, having covered technology for as long as I did, I still, to this day, cannot get my head around how slowly computers took to, how, how slow it all was. So let's talk about the reason for that and then the hope. Yeah, I mean, the reasons for that are complex, but I'd say the main ones are, uh, actually two things. One is it's complicated, and and it's not sort of a straightforward act to computerize medicine. If you think about your record, it lives in about a thousand different places, and the act of computerizing your record involves computerizing your record at UCSF, and it might involve computerizing your record in your doctor's office, computerizing your record in Walgreens, and then figuring out a way for all these things to talk to each other. It's not an easy thing to do. The companies, when most other industries were computerizing, the companies that ultimately computerized medicine hadn't been invented. Hmm. So, uh, you know, IBM and companies like that 30, 40 years ago talked about building an electronic medical record. It makes sense. Healthcare is 18% of our gross domestic product. It's all about information. And so it was reasonable for, for companies like IBM and GE and other digital giants to say, all right, we're going to figure this out. They all tried and they all screwed up. And the reason they all screwed up is that it turns out that you need to know a lot about medicine to get this even close to right. Do you so, have to be a doctor? I don't think you have to be a doctor, but you, you probably have to be at least... Up till now, you had to be a company that was built for the purpose of building a medical record as opposed to a general IT company like IBM or GE or Google, for that matter, which tried to build an electronic record for patients 12 years ago and, and, and screwed up. You mean from the very outset you have to say, this is what we're going to be doing? I don't think it's so much about the intentionality that you have to say that. It's that the act of building it is not the simple act of building a database. You actually have to understand the process of ordering a medication. And you have to understand the process of you know, what an x-ray is and how it works and how, uh, how a, a, a general, a primary care doc has to interact with a subspecialist. And you have to understand that electrophysiology is a subspecialty of cardiology, which is a subspecialty of internal medicine. And that's just not, you know, GE is not going to understand that. IBM is not going to understand that. A company built for this purpose can build the competency because there's a generic information collection and flow process. And sure, every big digital company is that. And then there are very domain-specific and complicated issues about the specific tasks of what a medical record needs to do that at least 
as it turned out, none of the general companies understood. So sort of new companies had to emerge to, to do this. Then you had a major business problem, which is who's going to buy the thing? For a doctor to buy a computerized record for his or her office is about today fifty to $75,000 per doctor. For a hospital like UCSF, we spent maybe two or $300 million on it. And also you started out with GE, right? We started out with a system. Now, we started out with a system built by a little healthcare computer company called IDX out of Vermont, ultimately bought by GE. I see. GE uh, said, we're going to figure this out. GE didn't know how to manage it. We ultimately pulled the plug on the GE system and then switched to another system. Is this all part of the hundreds of millions of dollars that got started? No, we don't even consider that. that really? Oh, yeah. You know, this is just, that's just what we spent on our latest system. So though that burnt money we don't we didn't think about anymore. So so uh, here's the, the economic problem I think is a, is probably the biggest part of it, which is if you're that doctor sitting in your office um, and you say, I'm using paper and it's working okay. Sure I can't really read the notes and all that, but I'm actually under no financial pressure and under no accountability for the outcomes of my patients. The reason I'm going to practice good medicine is because I'm a good person and I care about professionalism. And I don't want to, I don't want to kill anybody because I don't want to and I, I'm going to get sued. But it turns out if I practice spectacular medicine or good medicine, and the computer would be the difference between those two, the amount of money that Aetna pays me or, or Medicare pays me is exactly the same. Mm. The best hospital and the worst hospital in the country get paid exactly the same. That's not true anymore. That's changed only in the last three to five years. But up until that point, if you're a doctor and you're saying, I'm going to spend fifty dollars to $70,000 $70, out of my own pocket and computerize, it's going to completely disrupt my entire process. It's going to basically close us down for a month and be wildly disruptive. And at the end of it, I'm going to not get another cent in reimbursement. You're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true for a hospital. So the absence of... Who's, so who benefits from it? Let's say you did improve care. Probably in the old days, the beneficiary was more likely to be Medicare or the insurance company, but the money is coming out of the doctor or the hospital. Mm-hmm. So you have these wildly misaligned incentives that had to be fixed. And until they got fixed, neither doctors nor hospitals were going to spend the money to build or to buy the systems. And then you have this other problem of iteration in computer design, which is version 1.0 of everything stinks. You know, look at look at you know browsers. I mean, look at everything in, 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 in IT. Nothing was very good. They only get better when people use them mm-hmm. and complain about them, and you get version 2.0 and 9.0. So you had this mm. problem that these companies, for, most of them failed because they even if they spent the money to build, and it was a huge expensive build to build a program for a hospital, and then nobody bought it, and there was no iterations to make it better and better, you had this sort of massive failure. So everybody sat there until 10 years ago and had paper records. Hospital, this hospital, 2008, 9% of American hospitals had electronic health records and about the same percentage of doctors. So nine out of 10 hospitals, nine out of 10 doctor's offices, 10 years ago were still largely on paper at a time where financial services, travel, manufacturing were essentially 100% digital. So what needed to happen to change that was the federal government came in and threw a lot of money at us uh, in the form Many of Many billions. $30 billion, yeah. So an interesting little backstory: the the the, the uh, George Bush created something. George called, W. George W. Bush, yes. 
um, created something called the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. He created a position for something called the Health IT Czar in 2004. He did it because he was jealous because Tony Blair told him that he had created a big program in Britain to try to computerize the National Health Service, which ultimately failed. They wasted about $10 billion on that program. But George Bush came back. It was in the middle of the Iraq War. He wanted a sort of policy win and said to his advisors, we need a program to computerize American health care. He formed the National Office of Health IT, uh, engaged a friend of ours to run it, a guy named David Browler, who's in San Francisco. His initial budget to try to computerize the American healthcare system was $42 million. <laughs> the American healthcare system is a $3 trillion industry. So I've likened this to trying to change the direction of a battleship by putting your feet in the ocean and kicking really hard. It's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And David did what he could. He gave speeches and he tried to bring people together, but it was, it was, it was not gonna happen. Then in 2008, the economy imploded. If you remember, they, remember. they passed a, a, a $700 billion stimulus package to try to get the economy moving. The mantra at the time was we're gonna spend money on shovel-ready projects. They were talking about roads and bridges. But there were some smart health policy types who said this is the moment where we actually have a chance to computerize American health care. They dove into this, the $700 billion money pile, and they came out with $30 billion for a program that rolled out from 2010 to 2014 to give money to doctors and hospitals if they implemented computerized what was systems. What the program called? The program is called High Tech. Mm-hmm. Health information technology for economic blah blah. Okay, that's a, you, know. <laughs> you asked. <laughs> and so that is what kickstarted the whole. That is thing. what created the tipping point. Mm-hmm. I think it wasn't enough. If you think about it, it's thirty billion dollars. UCSF probably got, I think, maybe ten million. And I remember I told you we spent two hundred ish by the mm-hmm. time two hundred to three hundred by the time we're done. But it was enough for us and other uses to say, you know, we're going to have to computerize eventually. It's going to cost us a lot of money eventually. Might as well do it now if they're going to give us some money to support it. And the same thing was true for doctors' uh, offices where doctors said, you know, I, maybe I wasn't ready to do this now, but I know this money isn't going to last very long. This is my only chance to get subsidies. So it was wildly successful. You know, I, I said in 2008, 10% of hospitals and doctors' offices had electronic health records. By last year, 10% didn't. So we went from 10% digital to 90% digital over the course of about eight years. And for the patients, was it pretty seamless? Or how did, I mean, if I, I don't know about you guys, but when I go to the doctor, I, I love hearing the chart rustling, you know, then I know she's ready, she's coming. So. <laughs> the chart in the little bin. And now it's just like, surprise. <laughs> uh I don't think it's, certainly most patients didn't find it seamless, but I don't think they understood the level of angst Mm -hmm. that was going on in sort of the professional world of doctors and hospitals. I think they, if patients noticed it, they either noticed that their doctor was grumpy and was no longer looking at them. I think many patients noticed that. And And and, still do. And still do. Um, I think as the initial act was all on the professional side, meaning that we had an electronic record to, uh, to put in our notes, fairly soon and sometimes some places at the same time, we also had computerized order entry and patients may have noticed that they weren't being given a paper prescription anymore, but that we were binging something to Walgreens and you could pick up your prescription. So patients may have seen that and said, that's kind of neat and a positive mm-hmm. thing. Um, but in most systems, the initial computer system did not create a patient portal. Mm-hmm. That, like that, the MyChart. Like MyChart we... here. 
And that became sort of, once you had the, the doctor-nurse version of it, then the companies, the big one being Epic, the one that we use here, uh, very soon built a patient-facing portal that allowed you to schedule your appointments and then increasingly do more things. So now you can see your lab results and your rex results. And in a fair number of places now, patients can see everything. They can see everything I can see. We don't have that yet turned on. But about 10 million patients in the country now can see everything, including the doctor's note. So if the doctor says um, patients seem nervous or um, SOB. Yeah, so that's a big one. So, so, so our initials for the patient is short of breath is SOB. So a patient reads the note and says it looks like he's saying I'm an SOB. What's that about? So, uh, yes, that, that in places that have done this, patients can see the entire note and so physicians you, learn to be a little bit more careful yeah, about what you, they say. So do you think it inhibits physicians to the point where they're not completely honest yes. about their assessment of a yes, patient? Yes, no question about it. I think... I think that it, I think as a net, it's positive. I think that patients getting more engaged is a good thing. I think that um, uh, particularly as they begin to have tools that allow them to sort of understand what it's all about and maybe begin managing them, their health in a in a less passive way than they have. I think that's all for the better. And I think us cleaning up our act a little bit is probably fine too. You know that we put in the chart the patient's difficult or the patient's daughter is a pain. That's probably That not. goes into charts? People used to do that all the time. And so, you know, if you know the patient's going to look at it, you don't do that. That's probably a healthy thing. So I, I want to go through the hype part, Bob, but I want to do it quickly because okay. I want to get to the harm part and spend some time on that because yep. it's, a, it's a fascinating story, that the overdose story. Um, and it happened in our own backyard. Uh, so, but let's talk about the hype. Uh, just... The, this, I'd like to talk about like the whole sort of gadget frenzy and the Fitbit stuff and the wearables and the underwear. Is there, there's an underwear story? There's an underwear story in the book, right, yes. Right, right. So, to um, make it R-rated to get people to read it. Yeah. So let's, yeah, let's talk about that not for too long. Yeah, okay. Which one, the underwear? Well, you could start with the underwear <laughs> or uh, the Fitbit. Yeah, I mean, the, the, here's the... the the way I see this is that um, you know, in the health IT world is kind of divided into two pieces. There are the companies that build the big systems, and as I said, those were specific companies built for that purpose, Epic, Cerner, and all that. And then, of course, now you have Silicon Valley getting interested, and then they're building sensors and wearables and you know, shirts that will sense whether you have cancer. I mean, crazy, crazy That's stuff. That's not serious. Is that serious? There's a company that is doing that. It's not serious that it can do it accurately. Yes. A shirt? A shirt that will tell you that you have cancer. So um, Cotton? I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't know what it is. So uh, here's the problem. So these companies all have a tremendous financial interest in convincing you that this is great stuff. And they've got to raise venture capital to do that. And, and, and so there's a huge hype machine out there trying to convince us this is all, all fabulous. Um, there are certain tools that patients can use now that really are fabulous. So, for example, if you have diabetes or your kid has diabetes, the idea that you can use a monitor that will keep track of your sugars and, if it's a kid, signal your parent how your sugars are doing over the course of the day, I mean, that's pretty magic. 
Um, because I would say that is a piece of data, knowing what the sugar is at relatively high frequency for a diabetic person or a kid with diabetes, is really useful data. We know it's useful, and it's replacing a process that we do poorly on paper. On the other hand, there are tools out there that will measure your heart rate every second, will measure your blood pressure every second, will measure your stress level, you know, your serum rhubarb, for all I know. What? I don't know. So (laughs) these are pieces of data that, as far as I know, are worthless, have absolutely no value. The reason that someone might measure their heart rate every second is because there's a company that can create a sensor that will measure your heart rate every second, and their job (laughs) is to convince you that that's useful. Now, if it were just that and the patient was doing it and somehow feeling good about knowing that, okay, maybe that's fine. But the problem is it's a medical device, and now that data gets beamed to the primary care doctor who theoretically is going to welcome all this new data coming on their 2,000 patients. And I hear this periodically, how wonderful is it going to be for the primary care doctor to have all of their 2,000 patients with all of these data streams <laughs> all the time nightmare. coming to them. And I said, like, what planet is that? Every primary care doctor I know is going to jump off the roof if, <laughs> if, if you do that. So there's a huge amount of hype here. A lot of these sensors and, and, and other things that are measuring or diagnosing your rash or whatever are not ready for prime time. They have not been proven to be good enough to, for people to use them. A lot of them are measuring pieces of data that we actually don't know are useful, and I think the heart rate is an example. The underwear was in my discussion with the head of the National Office of Health IT, and I think she's not happy about this, but the day I happened to meet her, uh, she was excited about this new sensing underwear that could sense your kind of metabolic profile through the sweat that was being picked up in your underwear. And she thought this was Like, why was idea. that part of your body more important than sweat? Elsewhere? This is going to get really kind of weird quickly, but uh, <laughs> because it, it's, it's, it's something that is, has a fairly good surface area that is picking up body sweat reasonably okay, well. There you, let's not go further. So, um, And then the more I investigated this, not only was there... Uh, this, this, this underwear that would sense your sweat and, and analyze it, but there was another form of not only sensing underwear, but underwear that you could send a signal to from your iPhone <laughs> and would twitch you in various places. Come on! And its, it's name was Thunderwear. <laughs> I kid you not. So, I mean, this gets really silly and crazy pretty quickly. Okay. And so are we done with hype? Can we go on to harm? Well, the, <laughs> or was that harm? No, I mean, I think part of the hype as well was it wasn't just, you know, these tools that are measuring things that really aren't ready for prime time. But in, even in the professional world, part of the hype was uh, how wonderful is it going to be that we're going to be able to monitor a doctor's prescribing and send out an alert when you're about to prescribe a medicine that you know, that might interact with another medicine the patient is on. Or in the intensive care unit, how fantastic it is that the patients have monitors on that are digital and can analyze all these sort of things and send off an al- or, or fire an al- alarm when the patient is violating certain norms, their heart rate's too high or too low, mm-hmm. or their oxygen's too high or too low. That was, you know, sounded great. And so part of the hype, this is not, that's not Silicon Valley, you know, Wall Street-driven venture capital hype. That is new digital tools, how wonderful it's going to be. This is a business that's really all about information, how wonderful it's going to be. We're going to have these tools that are going to make care better. It, the hype 
was partly logical as an extension to how wonderful the other digital tools are in our life, but it turns out, as our president recently realized, it turns out healthcare is really complicated. And even in the example of, uh, we'll probably get into the alert thing, but in the alarm, uh, the, these alarms in the ICU, one of the facts from, that I put in the book that people were flabbergasted by, this is research done by Barbara Drew, who's a nurse researcher here. Barbara did a study a couple of years ago where she looked at our intensive care unit monitors. So these are the ones that are measuring your heart rate and your blood pressure and your respiratory rate every second, by the way, and that's useful, not for a healthy person, but a person in the ICU who's really sick, it actually is useful to monitor all that. Anytime anything's wrong, an audible alert goes off. In a month in our 70 ICU beds, there was an audible alert that went off 2.5 million times. So in one month, we had 2.5 million alerts. There was an audible alert that goes off about every six minutes. And Barbara told me just an amazing story. She said, I was standing by the bedside of a patient talking to the nurse, and the, the alarms kept going off, and Barbara doesn't practice clinically anymore, so she kept jumping, and the nurse seemed completely calm. And Barbara said, you know, these alarms are going off all the time. Like, what would make you worry that your patient is really sick and you needed to react to that? And the nurse thought for a second, and then she said, silence. She said, if there were no alarms, I'd be really worried that something wrong was going on that was wrong. I mean, that's like upside-down world. So that's a different kind of hype. It's a logical kind of hype. It made sense. You can monitor, you can alert, you can alarm, terrific. It turns out that we didn't fully understand what the consequences of those things were gonna be. Speaking of alerts, could you get Walgreens to stop robo-calling me? <laughs> when I get, when link- my prescription is when right. I get LinkedIn to stop asking me to join, then I just <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the overdose story, which I have to say it, it really, it makes the book. In fact, it got excerpted in Medium um, in a wonderful way um, over the course of a few days. Yeah, they, they were in a five-part series. Yeah. yeah. It was great. So tell, tell us the story. So the story, very briefly, is, is a kid, a 16-year-old kid, was in the hospital here uh, uh, for, he has, an, uh, he has a genetic immunodeficiency that causes inflammation in his colon. He was here basically to be prepared for colonoscopy. And one of his 10 medicines that he was supposed to be on was this medicine called Septra, which is a common antibiotic, and it was a pill. You're supposed to get one twice a day. And through a series of glitches that are a little too complex to explain, but it turns out that when you're ordering a medicine for kids, you often order them in milligrams per kilogram of body weight because a pill for a for a little preemie is different than a pill for a teenager. So for kids, you order in milligrams per kilogram of body weight. And through kind of a series of glitches, the doctor ended up ordering what he thought was going to be 160 milligrams, but he ended up ordering 160 milligrams per kilogram. The kid weighed 39 kilograms, which weighed 85 pounds, and that was a 39-fold overdose. When you look at how that could happen, the, the difference between it being on milligrams versus milligrams per kilogram is, is very subtle. Mm-hmm. It would be really easy to mix. It was a little bit of a back and forth between the pharmacy, calling back the doctor. It wasn't all that hard a mistake to make. But, but people interacting with people. But yeah, it was a well-meaning set of rules about the way you ordered medicines in kids. It was then the doctor put it in a certain way. The pharmacist called the doctor back and said, no, that's not exactly the way you should do it. Why don't you put in 160 instead of the way you did it, and the doctor forgot that it was st- the machine was still set for milligrams. This is the equivalent of having your caps lock key down, meaning that, that, that milligrams versus non-milligrams is just the way the computer is set up, 
And in the same way that when your caps lock key is down and you try to put in your password, it's not working, the computer signals you and says, you know, moron, the caps lock key is down. That's why your password's not working. But in, in one of the flaws in the Epic system, or the computer system, was there's no real signal that you're in milligram mode, despite no, the fact no that... No alert? Well, no, no, there are alerts. There, there's nothing obvious that said... What there should be is like a big scale that you see. You're in milligram mode. So you know, oh. wow, you know, I'm putting in 160. That's 160 milligrams per kilogram. I'm sorry, kilogram mode. Um, so anyway, that's what the doctor did. But the real nature of the error, and the reason I came home at the end of the day, said this is like an amazing thing, was, okay, then an alert fire to the doctor. And, and that's a computer doing exactly what it's programmed to do. The doctor looked briefly at the alert and clicked out of it, meaning sort of there's an easy way to, to make the alert go silent. It's like a snooze button. And why did the doctor do that? Because that doctor, over the course of the day, is going to get 20 or 30 different alerts about different medicines, and about 98% of them are false alarms. It's not like they're wrong, but they are programmed so that, well, doctor, did you realize that Tylenol can interact with grapefruit juice and the kid is on a diet that has grapefruit juice? And it turns out that's inconsequential. So it's like the programming is set at a level that it's going to alert you about anything that might possibly be an issue, whereas 99 times out of 100, it's not an issue. So what people get used to, it's the boy who's cried, cried wolf, you get used to seeing these things and just saying, yeah, whatever, 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 whatever. Why? Because it's the only way you can get your work done. The doctor clicked out of an alert. Then the pharmacist got an alert. The pharmacist clicked out of the alert for all the same reason. When you also look at the alert, it is incredibly poorly designed, busy, text everywhere, and an alert for a 39-fold overdose and the alert for don't use this drug with grapefruit juice look exactly the same. Just to give context, the, the, a 39-fold overdose would be the equivalent of driving on 101 and seeing a sign that said the speed limit is 2,500 miles an hour. That's a 39-fold overdose. And the equivalence of the signs not being different is this would be like saying that, that if the sign said 66 miles an hour versus 65 and 2,500 miles an hour versus 55 or 65, those signs look exactly the same. So they go off all the time, and they don't distinguish the severity of alerts. So that's, that's the doctor did that, the pharmacist did that. Next thing that happens is the medicine goes to a pharmacy technician or the, 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 the order. In the old days, it would have gone to a label printer, printed out a label. Pharmacy technician would have seen an order for 39 pills and probably would have said, what the hell, and turned to the pharmacist, tapped the pharmacist on the shoulder, said, did you mean for 39 pills? The pharmacist would have said, no, are you kidding? No way. Now it goes to a $7 million state-of-the-art robot down in, in China Basin, and it gets an order for 39 pills, and it says, thank you, in robot language, pulls them out, perfect precision, shrink wraps them, barcodes them, sends them to the floor. So shrink wraps 39 separate? 39 separate pills, little 39 little packages, yeah. Puts them on little plastic rings, puts them in a bin, sticks them on a van, sends them here. They go up to the floor where a young nurse who by sort of you know, bad karma happened to be on an unfamiliar floor that night, first-year nurse, sees this order for 39 pills. Again, this is a crazy dose, but begins saying to herself, you know, I'm on an unfamiliar floor, maybe this is the right dose for this kind of patient, and thinks about calling the doctor, but decides she doesn't want to bother the doctor, thinks about calling the charge nurse who's busy giving another kid chemo, decides not to interrupt her. And part of the reason she didn't do that is she's got another piece of technology that she completely trusts, and that's her barcode machine. And the barcode machine is just like it the Safeway. 
Each pill has a barcode. So she goes and she barcodes pill number one, and the barcode machine says, I need to see 38 more. And why? Because the barcode at that moment in the medication process, the job of the barcode is to make sure the nurse gives the correct medicine. So if the medicine, the correct medicine is not the correct medicine, but is wrong and has made it through the safety stages, bypassing the doctor's alert, the pharmacist's alert, the robot, now the barcode confirms to the nurse that this crazy dose is actually the correct dose. And she gives us good 39 pills. And he's lying there. She's handing him the pills. And she says to him... She says to him, uh, as it turns out, this kid had, you know, had a g- disease from when he was a baby. She says, this seems really weird. You know, it's a lot of pills. And the kid says two things. One is, yeah, people are always wondering about the medicines I'm getting. I'm used to that through my life. I, I'm, I'm, it's fine. And the kid also, his mother had been with him earlier that night. And his mother, who I've met, is, is, is a bulldog and would have tackled the nurse if the nurse was coming in to give her kid 39 pills. The mother, it turned out, had to also be with her other kid that night who has the same genetic disease and was hospitalized on a different floor by unbelievably, you know, unbelievable karma. Uh, but before she left the kid's room, she said, they're going to come in later and give you a lot of medicine. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Because of the colonoscopy? She was referring to the, the prep that he needed for his colonoscopy, that someone's going to come uh. in and give him all this stuff to drink. That's what she meant when the nurse came in to give the kid the pills. And she said, is this okay? And the kid said, oh, yeah, mom told me I was going to get a lot of medicine, and I'm always getting weird medicines. It's, it's okay. When I interviewed the nurse, I interviewed everybody, the patient and the mom and the nurse and the doctors. And I, I remember they interviewed the nurse at her house. And, uh, and, and I said, what were you thinking when you were giving this kid 39 pills? And she said, you know, I, first of all, I had to barcode every one of them. So next time in the Safeway, 39 times she had to barcode them, tear them all open, put them in a cup, and she said, I was thinking, what a good kid this is to be that patient and take 39 pills. And then she stopped and she started crying. Because in retrospect, it's completely obvious that this is a crazy, insane dose. She knows that. But in the moment where the barcode is telling you this is right and you're not confident because you're on a floor that you're not familiar with, I actually had a lot of sympathy. I mean, I wish she'd stopped it. I wish she'd called the doctor. I wish she'd called the, the, the pharmacist. But I sort of said, in that predicament, in that moment, with the computer giving you a signal that this is right, I get how you did that. And he then? He had a, he had a few hours later, he started feeling really jittery. And he texted a friend, right? He texted a friend saying, uh, while he was taking, he said, give me a lot of pills, and, but uh, you know, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. And I think the friend said it was okay. And, and, and a few hours later, he started feeling jittery. Uh, they called the mom, she came in the room, and then he had a grand mal seizure and started shaking and spent a week in the ICU and just by dumb luck didn't die. I mean, it, it is, just happens to be that Septra is not that, that toxic, uh, but spent an extra week or 10 days in the hospital. And uh, uh, actually, I'm, you know, one of the things that's most impressive is I went up to the, uh, when I first heard the case, I went up to the head of risk management for the hospital who, whose job it is to protect the hospital apart from being sued. And I said, this is such an amazing case. I think the lessons here are unbelievable. I think we should disseminate it. And she said, oh, that's really a great idea. We should have some conferences about it and like talk about it. And I said, yeah, but I had in mind writing a book about it. And like her hair went on fire. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? And, and to her credit, she said, you know, it's such an amazing case, and it has so many lessons. And I hear from my colleagues at other places, they're having problems, not exactly this, but new errors caused by computer systems. 
She said, I won't veto it, but you're going to need the approval of the CEO of the hospital. And ultimately, the CEO of the hospital said yes. And I thought it was an act of tremendous institutional bravery. Because here you are, you know, having the discussion of how we at this amazing hospital gave a kid a 39-fold overdose. Right. But he, well, thought, he thought it was the right thing to do. And he said, you know. Did he immediately think it was? No, no, you? it took a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it took a few, a few weeks, and we were actually at a conference together sitting around the table, and we were talking about that error, and everybody was talking about sort of the amazing lessons we got from it. And I, I got a text, and I looked up, and he said, yes, you should write about this. And, uh, you know. He like, was in the room with yeah, you? Yeah, we were both on different sides of a conference table. Oh. Yeah. So why don't we, I'd, what I'd like to do, uh, I'd like to hear uh, the ending uh, if you don't mind yeah, sure. reading it, it's it's really lovely, and um, it's just a couple paragraphs, right? No, it's a, um, a couple set, pages. Why don't take, you set it up? Take three minutes, and but. then we can take questions. Yeah. So uh, the the setup is uh, at the end of a book that I you know covered everything from the things we've talked about to Silicon Valley's entry into healthcare to patient engagement and artificial intelligence and will we need doctors in the future? Sort of felt like I'd been all over the place in a way, and then kind of wanted to bring it back again to patients. And to me, one of the fundamental questions my journey caused me to think about really hard is what does it mean to be a doctor and to be a patient in an era, in a world that is becoming more and more technological? And what are the limits of the technology and where can we take it too far? And so one of the acts in writing these kind of this book I found was like finding the story that captures the, the emotion, and that's, that's uh, remembered something that had happened to me several years earlier, and that's how I ended it. A couple of years ago, I was caring for a patient in his 70s, let's call him Mr. Gordon, in the ICU at UCSF Medical Center. This was a challenging case. While it was clinically obvious that the patient who had widely metastatic cancer was going to die, several members of the family had not come to terms with that sad reality. Layered on top of that, I sensed significant conflict within the family, The patient's son and daughter were cool toward each other, nearly businesslike, and the son and the daughter's husband could hardly stand to be in the same room. As Mr. Gordon drifted in and out of consciousness, I sat down with the family in a conference room just outside the ICU. The family tension suffused the room with a heavy air, the smog of long-standing resentments. I described the clinical situation. I told them how it was that we were sure that Mr. Gordon was dying. I gave them my assessment that ongoing aggressive care would be futile and inhumane. I recounted my consultations with the ICU specialist, the oncologist, and the palliative care team, all of whom endorsed my prognosis and approach. I told them that I understood their desire to keep Mr. Gordon alive, but that I believed that the time had come to stop trying. After talking for a while, the family members began to describe some happy memories of their times with Mr. Gordon and recalled his attitudes about end-of-life care. It became clear that, they would, that he would not have wanted aggressive care at this stage. I could feel the family members gradually casting aside their grievances, if only temporarily, as they coalesced around Mr. Gordon's interests. Their questions answered, I left the room and returned to the ICU. A few minutes later, Mr. Gordon's son, holding back tears, found me in the ICU and told me that the family had decided that it was time to allow his dad to die peacefully. I replied that I understood how wrenching this decision was, but that it was the right one, one that I would make for one of my own parents. He went back to the waiting room to rejoin his family. 
I entered Mr. Gordon's room and informed the nurse that we would be switching from our current full-court press to comfort care. I asked him to turn down the oxygen on the mechanical ventilator, to remove all the IVs except the one for morphine, and to bring some chairs into the room to allow the family to be at Mr. Gordon's bedside during his final minutes. I walked out to the waiting room to inform the family that the time had come and then escorted them in to see Mr. Gordon for the very last time. They entered the room one by one. The two siblings embraced. The son and son-in-law nodded at each other, an act I interpreted as a momentary truce, and all four took seats surrounding the patient's bed. Mr. Gordon lay still, now unconscious from his morphine drip. The stage was set, but then I noticed a problem. In his haste to discontinue the various tubes and treatments, the nurse had forgotten to disconnect the bedside cardiac monitor, which continued to flicker a few feet above Mr. Gordon's head. And so it was that at one of life's most profound moments, a moment nearly impossible in its mystery and poignancy, a moment paradoxically rich with promise and ineffable sadness. All four family members' eyes were raised, not searching for truth or for God, but watching little squiggles, each the electronic signature of a heartbeat, march across a rectangular screen. Mr. Gordon's son was sitting closest to the monitor. I put my hand on his shoulder, speaking to all of them. I said, your dad is comfortable and I'm so glad you could all be here with him. I'm sure he is too. But, and I pointed to the heart monitor, there is nothing, absolutely nothing on this screen that matters. And I pressed the off button. As the screen went to black, the family member shared a look of shock, then clarity, and then, what was it? Acceptance, warmth, gratitude, transcendence, maybe even love. After a moment of gathering themselves, each turned to Mr. Gordon squeezed his hands, stroked his arm, touched his cheek. The scene was pure, peaceful, and in a way that is hard to describe, quite beautiful. And then he died. Thank you. That was, I have to say that in writing that, if you, I don't know if you recall, but we sent the book around to maybe eight or ten people. Uh, six or seven really liked that. Three or four said, you can't end a book like that. I mean, the last words of the book are, and then he died. Well, why? They thought it was too abrupt. They thought it was too... But it's life. It's... It is life. And, and they thought it was a little bit off point for the book. And I said, I thought it captured what the book was about and the tension uh, well. And I also, it was a little bit of my homage to The Sopranos. If you remember The Sopranos, the, the last scene of The Sopranos goes to black, and that's it, and you're left. And I actually liked the idea of the ending sort of going mm. to black quickly mm. and then leaving it slightly jarring. But I have heard people like, wait a second, that can't be the end, but that, in fact, is the end. Yeah, I think it's great. Thank you. So, um, questions? question which is wonderful is we saw in the rest of computing, beginning with these huge expensive mainframes and then costs came down as we figured out how <clears throat> to miniaturize things and scale things and build it once and, 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 and replicate it infinite numbers of times and will the same thing happen in healthcare. There's a concept that I, I, I kind of stumbled upon in, in writing the book that turned out to be really valuable to me as a, meta, as a mental model. It's called the productivity paradox of IT. The productivity paradox coined by uh, an MIT engineer 
25 years ago, basically says in industry after industry, they put in technology, they expected massive gains in productivity and quality, and three, five, seven years went by and they didn't see them and people were left scratching their heads. And usually it was about 10 years later where they started seeing the massive benefits. And it was partly because the technology got better and partly because people began, began rethinking the work and who did what and, and, and all of the jobs. So I think that we are in the early years of the productivity paradox. Now some of it is that, yeah, I mean the system that we bought here lives on servers sitting in the basement somewhere. It's not cloud-based. It's not particularly scalable. Now, it is a system that, you know, Stanford bought the same one, and Kaiser has the same one, and all. But even that, once you had it, we then had to spend tens of millions of dollars tweaking it, customizing it, and all that. So it is not a model that scales well. It's not a model where in the modern way of thinking about IT design in a cloud world where you can see what everybody's doing and where they're struggling and you can fix it from central headquarters because they can't. I think that's going to get better. The problem is the, the kind of fixed costs of getting into this market are enormous. So once we have spent our two or three hundred million dollars on Epic, if you build something that's better and cheaper and faster and more nimble, if it's just twice as good as Epic, we're not doing it. If it's got to be 50 times better and cheaper because we have so much sunk costs, political costs, people costs, and money costs into it. So that's, I think the, my, my own personal bias is the real hope here is not so much that we will end up replacing these big systems that we have, but the systems will open up their architecture in an app store kind of way so that you then have the Googles and the Apples and the Facebooks and the Salesforces building new tools that take the data out, because these systems are perfectly good collectors of data, but they don't do anything useful with it. Take the data out, build new tools and new analytics, and then feed it back in so that from the doctor and nurse's standpoint, we're still on the same machine, the one that we bought initially, but there's all sorts of magic happening that those companies, I think, are not capable of. Whether it will scale in the way we saw in kind of the mainframe world, I think is an open question. My guess is it will in the small ambulatory practice world, in the doctor's office world, where the, the requirements are, are far simpler. Uh, in the world of the big complex hospital, the number of pieces that have to connect with each other are so complex that it's, it's difficult to, I'm sure it'll happen, but it's not, it's not straightforward to figure out how you sort of change to a much more nimble design. And, and the fixed costs are immense. I mean, we really are kind of stuck with the technology that we currently have and depend on these companies to build the next versions that are better and better. So an Epic kind of has the corner on the market? Uh, not the corner on the market, but, but among big, particularly big academic health systems, Epic won the game. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't conspiratorial. That was the best system that was out there. It was built, you know, a, a, a uh, woman named Judy Faulkner who's a computer engineer at the University of Wisconsin decided to build a health computer company for the Department of Psychology in Wisconsin starting 30 years ago and stuck with it and stuck with it and now she's worth about $5 billion and Epic is a privately held company that basically, if you look at the US news list of the top 10 hospitals in the country, nine of them have, have Epic. It's not a complete monopoly because it's very expensive and if you're a smaller hospital, there's a decent chance you don't have Epic, you have mm -hmm. one of the other systems. And if you're a doctor's office, mm -hmm. you probably don't have Epic because they won't sell to you, they'll only sell to big places. Mm -hmm. So there are kind of different systems that you see in, in, in doctor's offices. But yeah, they, 
and there's, there's sort of a monopolistic effect that has occurred because now it's become a little bit like IBM 30 years ago. It's the safest choice if you're the IT director. It's too risky for you not to buy Epic. And the second thing is the computers in America don't talk to each other very well. So that wasn't built in as a requirement. So the Epic system doesn't talk to the Cerner system, doesn't talk to the other systems very well. But Epic systems do talk to each other now pretty well. And mm -hmm. that's gotten a lot better in the last two years. So that's another force mm -hmm. that if you're trying to decide to buy, take the University of California system, by the way, as one example, we all, a couple of us bought Epic. And then the others said, we better buy mm -hmm. Epic because we want all the systems to talk to each other. When we bought Epic after we ditched GE, one of the advantages was, well, Kaiser has Epic, and Sutter has Epic, and Stanford, and we bought it sort of about the same time. So the idea of, of having an ecosystem where all the, system, where the, where all the systems share um, makes Epic the, the winner in the sweepstakes. Uh, the points you made, I've, I've given talks where I said the, the two transformational trends in medicine today are the value pressure, meaning that we are now really under pressure in a way that we weren't before, to deliver care that's better and safer and more satisfying and less expensive. We're being measured on it in a way that we weren't before. Increasingly, we're being paid on it in a way that we weren't before. That is the, that's the biggest transformative change today at UCSF. That's the pressures that we feel. How do we do that? How, and it's all healthy. I mean, we should have been working on this for 100 years, but we weren't. The second is that we've gone from analog, from paper, to digital. And the point I made there is if you ask me today what the bigger deal is, the bigger deal is the value pressure. If you ask me eight or 10 years from now, I'm pretty sure the bigger deal will have been that we went digital. And the reason I say that is, if you remember, we were, we've really only become digital as an industry over the last five to seven years. You know, we're 10% digital 10 years ago. About five to seven years ago, we became 50% digital. So it's a relatively new phenomenon in medicine. Uh, I can't think of an industry that 15 years after widespread digitization looked anything lo like what it looked like when it started. And you know, whether that's retail, whether that's financial services, whether that's travel, whether that's journalism, whether that's uh, taxi cab drivers, you name it, not only is the industry turned upside down, but the leading organizations weren't, probably didn't exist when all that started. Healthcare, we haven't seen anything yet. People in my world talk about, oh my God, there's so much stuff going on. We haven't seen anything because in the digital transformation, we're just in the training wheel stage. We've just really gone to an organization that collects the data digitally, but really doesn't have, you know, it's not all aggregated, all the machines aren't connected. When that happens, I think we're going to see massive transformation. So that will change the nature of the work in fundamental ways. I talk in the book about. Uh, the, the history of radiology rounds, which I thought was a kind of useful example. And when I was a medical student, the central hub of the hospital was the radiology department because every day you went down to radiology to look at your films. And when I talk to a young medical student today, they don't know what a film is. They've never seen one. There's no such thing anymore. There, there are images. They're on computers. So when radiology went digital, there is nobody I have found who even gave a moment's thought about how that might change the relationship between the frontline clinicians who are taking care of the patients and the radiologists. It turned out within about two weeks after radiology went digital, those rounds ended. We no longer went down to radiology to look at our films because we didn't have to, and it completely transformed the relationship. So that's something we got wrong completely, not understanding the changes in the nature of the work and communication because you no longer had this thing of gathering around the film. And then the final point is I 
I completely agree that there needs to be a, a new kinds of doctors, nurses, pharmacists who really can be bridges between the technology and clinical practice. Um, we have some of them, and actually at UCSF we're pretty good here. We've got actually a fair number of people who are duly trained in a clinical field and certified and trained in informatics. I think there need to be more of them because I think those people are the people that will help us in this thing called reimagining the work. I don't think a doctor or nurse can do it themselves because they actually need to understand the technology. Mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. think a pure technologist can do it because they actually have to understand clinical practice. And we need to train more of them. Whether we need to do it at the, sort of at the start, I'm not sure, uh, but I, 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 think there, I think you're going to see sort of a rejiggering of specialties. You're going to see more and more physicians and nurses and others whose job looks a little bit more like an air traffic controller where they're taking care of a lot of patients, but they're following them through you know, some digital platform where they're seeing how they're all doing and they're FaceTiming them and they're measuring their sugars and they're breathing, you know, they're breathing in their iPhone every day. Mm. Uh, we haven't invented those specialties yet and I agree with you, I think I'd like us to be the place to figure that out. Did we change it after this case? We, it's part of the, the, the answer is we spent a lot of energy on looking at our alerts and we've turned off a whole lot of them. So, so we do have some control over the, the sensitivity of the alerting system, like how many of them fire. And you, what you do when you buy Epic is you buy another system that basically is pre-programmed to fire anytime there might be a problem. And we realize, and that's what you get out of the box, Part of the reason you get that out of the box is medical legal, which is the feeling that if it doesn't fire and something bad happens, we're going to get sued and it's terrible and all that. What I think we came to realize is actually the medical legal risk is higher if we don't turn them off. Mm -hmm. Because if they're firing all the time and people ignore them, that's pretty bad. And so we've turned off a whole lot of them. In terms of what they look like, this is a problem. And the problem is that we don't control that. So the system that you buy from Epic you buy what their alerts look like. They have gotten better. They're more stratified based on severity. It's not quite skull and crossbones, but there's, it's, it's the, the bad ones look mm -hmm. worse than they mm -hmm. did. They're a little less text heavy than they were, but they're still not, they're still not very good. But it is part of the problem. It's, it's, we, there are certain things that we can modify internally, but there are certain things that it's what you bought from, that comes at you from uh, Verona, Wisconsin. We actually can't control it. And what was your first question? You know, that's a very interesting point. So the point was, as a customer, you can push. Uh, we are not big enough to push Epic to do anything. Wow. You if you're say, not big enough. We're not big enough. <laughs> the, the UC system? Or the UC system is not big enough to push Epic to do anything. It is weird. If you're Epic, you are just pretty fat and happy putting out systems, spending most, a lot of your time and energy. You know, it's, these are not immoral people. I spent a couple of days there. I got to meet them. They're good people. They're trying to do the right thing. But when they, and when they hear about something that truly is horrible and dangerous, they'll fix it. But if you're them, you're getting requests from everybody. And part of it is because, you know, they, every place customized a little bit and, and all that. And you're, you can't put out a new release every two months. You put out a new big change once a year, once every 18 months. And so, I mean, the funniest thing I heard here was I got a call once from, uh, maybe I met somebody at a meeting, who said, we're trying to put together a consortium of big hospital systems 
so that together we can go to Epic and say, you got to <laughs> fix this thing. And I said to the person talking to me, I said, look, Kaiser Permanente is tr tries to push Epic and is un relatively unsuccessful. Kaiser Permanente is you know, 10 times our size and is relatively unsuccessful. And the guy who was telling me we're trying to put together this consortium says, I know I'm from Kaiser Permanente. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh my god. So you know, they, they, they hear it, but, but any one place is a relatively small part of their overall market. And they're not the most responsive company in the world. In part, no ding on them, really. They are so busy putting in systems into into uh, hospitals that want to buy it. They, they tell hospitals, no, we can't, we don't have the bandwidth to go into your place, you're too small. You know, places have to like beg them to come in. So they're in a pretty good economic position and I think they're less responsive than they need to be. And I think they've gotten a little bit better over the years, but not perfect. So the question was about uh, different, different patients who come from different, different socioeconomic backgrounds and, and how is this benefiting them? Um, there is a potential here for a digital divide that's real. I mean, if, if, if the only way that we can prescribe now is electronically and you, you know, and, and, and you don't have, or, you know, if, if the way you make an appointment now has to be online, and it's not, you can still call, but 90% of people now are making appointments online, so you sort of dial down the number of people at the call center. Mm -hmm. You can imagine people being disadvantaged, as they are in all sorts of other lines of business uh, if they don't have access to those tools. I think that's, that's a real possibility that we have to pay attention to. I guess my own feeling is it's more likely to go the other way, that most people have smartphones, that, that the ability to provide people the information they need to help care for themselves and customize it based on people's literacy level or language mm. is greater in a world that's digital than a world that's paper. I mean, in some ways these problems come up and we say, yeah, that's a problem, but then you look at what was that like when it was paper? You know, it was really very terrible. I think in some ways the opportunity, and both domestic and international, the opportunity to deliver healthcare to people that have no access to even seeing a doctor is a hell of a lot greater if you have telemedicine and they can dial in and see a doctor through FaceTime than it could ever be if there's on an Indian reservation the nearest doctor is 300 miles away or they're somewhere in rural Africa. So I think, and, and, I, and, and even, you know, we have a huge number of patients here who don't speak English and in a non-digital world, we have to call an interpreter who try, you know, comes and maybe we have one who speaks that language or doesn't. And today, now, you know, we have phones that are enabled, but increasingly we're going to use the Google Translates of the world. And, well, uh, that could get dangerous in medicine, right? Yeah, sure. But it, you have to weigh it against the, what happens now, which is I'm waiting for the translator and there's no one there, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to get by on my Spanish, which is, you know, as you know, about three words. You know three <laughs> words? Paella, yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, mean it, it, I actually think the, case, I think the potential is actually more positive than negative there, but I think it's something we've got to be quite sensitive to. Sure. I mean, I, I, we, we certainly see a lot of patients coming into clinic, and they've already looked it up, and they sometimes have 40 pages of printouts they want to talk about. And sometimes that's wonderful and interesting, and sometimes I mean, we're, not, we're not perfect. And they'll come in and they'll have thought about it and come up with something I might not have thought of. And sometimes what they bring in is crazy. You know, is, is, there's a lot of mischief on the internet. Um, and so like a lot of things, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I, I generally 
am fully in favor, and this sounds like mom and apple pie, but of you know, patients having access to information and democratizing healthcare to me seems like a good thing. Uh, but you can take it too far. And I think that, that, that there is a risk here. A couple of years ago, my younger son called me and, and said he had diabetes and glaucoma. And I said, sweetie, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I looked up my symptoms on the internet. He does not have diabetes or glaucoma, but that's what WebMD told him he had. And of course, he was a little panicked. You know, that can happen. And so, you know, like a lot of things, I, I think we have to be a, the democratization. One of the things that the internet does is it democratizes everything. And the democratization of, you know, that, that I read Yelp reviews rather than restaurant reviews, I think probably is net healthy. Uh, the, I manage my own finances mostly in a way in the old days that we couldn't, uh, I think is, again, mostly healthy. I think it's an open question whether you managing your own illnesses is going to be healthy or not. To the extent that you are engaged and you know what's going on and you can do some levels of self-care, I think could be healthy up to a point that you misdiagnose or you're reassured or you go on the internet and it makes you panicked. I think it's just a balance that we've got to figure out how to get right, but the tools are going to get better and better. And I think ultimately, you know, there's a lot of what doctors do that is pretty algorithmic. And I have no doubt that at some point you'll be able to go onto the internet with a set of symptoms and the internet will give you a reasonable answer that is no more likely to be wrong than the answer I give you. Well, first of all, thank you. So the point was being a published uh, physician is, is a good thing and potentially a role model. I mean, there are a lot of us, in a place like this, uh, most people have published. What's a little bit unusual about me is, to, is, is I've written a few books that are, what are like this, which is a crossover book, meaning it's not a purely medical textbook thing. I, you know, I've done those too. Um, and yeah, I think people, uh, there's... The world of publishing has been democratized tremendously. We have a lot of students that do blogs and tweet and do other things. And I think I will periodically have someone come up to me and they're, they're interested in how to do it, but in some ways they're more interested in how, how do you make a career of it. Uh, and, and if I want to make it in the academic world, is doing this kind of work the coin of the realm? Is it a good thing or not so much? I think that's changed in a way that's quite positive. I think in the old days, uh, writing a book that is sort of a more lay-oriented book was not considered to be of any value in the promotion process. It was sort of not what academic doctors did. You published your articles in Science and the New England Journal of Medicine, and that was, in some ways it was felt to be a little bit cheap. Uh, I think that's I think that's ridiculous. Personally, I think it's asinine. I think a you know a book like this that did fairly well has much more impact than almost anything else I could do in in the more traditional medical literature. Um, and I think forward-thinking places like this one now give it credibility. And I, I think the person who's done more for this than anybody is Atul Gawande. If you've ever read anything about by Atul Gawande, there are a lot of people that want to grow up to be Atul Gawande or Abraham Gawandebees. Yeah, the, the 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 medical student book club at the University of Pennsylvania. I was there a couple of weeks ago. Is called the Gawandebees. I, I told Atul that, and he was quite tickled by that. Uh, yeah, I, I think people want to do. With the caution I give for students is. If, first of all, it's not that easy. Uh, it takes time. I mean, this book could only happen in part because I took six months off from my day job and was able to do that 
because of you know sabbaticals and things like that. It's hard to do when you're first starting out. And if you want to make it in academia, you still have to do some of the traditional stuff. And you know, I came at this kind of work after I had already done more traditional things. What's pretty remarkable is I'm now chair of the biggest department here. And uh, I look very, very different than the phenotype of a chair of a department of medicine at UCSF uh, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. In the old days, the person who would be given that responsibility had to come out of kind of the basic science lineage. You had to be someone who made it by virtue of getting a ton of grants from the NIH and being a real scientist. And as I will sometimes say to our basic scientists, you know, I had a science degree from college. It was political science, which some of them find very funny. Most of them don't. Um, but what's happened is the world has changed. And the, 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 you know, the few skills that I have actually turn out to be relevant. The, I, the stuff that is in this book about how do we figure out ways of delivering care that's better and safer and less expensive and how do we integrate technology and how do we do innovation um, is a very different set of skills than how do you do basic science experiments. Both are still important. Our department is the leading recipient of grants from the NIH in the country. I've got to care about that a lot. I've got to manage that a lot. But I don't have to do that in order to be effective in my job. And the things that I am actually decent at uh, actually turn out to be more relevant to what chairs and deans need to do today in, because of the way academic medicine has evolved. So I'd like to end this by asking you one more question, which is you gave the commencement speech at Penn uh, University of Pennsylvania Medical School. I'm very proud of you, honey. Thank that you. was great. Thank you. Well, that was uh, fun. A couple weeks ago. And um, you left them with a message that I guess is best described as sort of this, so this whole crop of young physicians who are coming up and just basically um, born digital, uh, digital natives. What was the, it was sort of a, it was a how do you retain humanism as you go forward? So what, what note did you leave them with? Well, there were a couple. I, I mean, I, 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 I focused a lot on this world that I said, when you started college, the field that you're now going into was a paper field and it's now a digital field. And we have not figured out how to get it right. And, um, and you're going to hear that from your elders. You're going to hear about burnout rates in medicine that have skyrocketed and people moaning about their technology. And I said, you know, there are two things that need to happen and you're going to be the ones that figure it out. One is how to make these tools work effectively. And that really is not just... That's not writing code. That is being, having a mindset where you say a great doctor of today is not simply a great doctor that we used to think of, that you're really good taking care of a patient, diagnosing a patient, doing your surgery and a set of skills. It's going to be someone who's a relentless reinventor, who's someone who sees the world that they're working in in the ecosystem and says, I need to figure out how to organize this in ways that deliver better care for patients. Some of that's going to be working with technology in new ways. And the second is essentially what I try to capture at the end of the book, which is trying to figure out, in some ways in the subtext of a lot of the questions, is what is the right balance between the technology, which to some extent is, 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 tends to be dehumanizing. You know, we're spending all of our time in that machine. What is the right balance between that and the fundamental humanity of medicine? 
And basically, I framed it that, you know, that I, I sort of sorry my generation did not figure this out. Uh, and, but I'm quite confident that your generation will. Mm. I think the tools are going to get better, and I think you're being trained in a way that you will, you will look at your work and say part of what a great doctor does is help figure out the answers to these questions, and I was confident that they would do it. And they seem to like that. They seem to like it. Good. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Nice to see you. (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.